Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We finished the theological prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and then we finished a little bit of a narrative prologue that John wrote at the rest of chapter 1. We enter into chapter 2, and really, as we have sung, this This whole book, but this section in particular, is all about the glory of Jesus. It's all about Jesus' glory being revealed to us. And if you turn back to chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 14, John writes, familiar words, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, or beheld his glory. What kind of glory is it? It's glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is God, very God, filled with grace and truth. John was the one who testified about that, but go down to verse 16. Because of his fullness, of the fullness of Jesus Christ's glory specifically, we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. So there's a formula here. When you see Jesus for who he is and you see his glory, grace is given and faith is born. If you want faith, you need to stare at Jesus, stare at his glory, and faith will grow. God's grace will be given and faith will grow. But John 11 also says the opposite of that. John 11, Jesus tells uh, the women that are at Lazarus' tomb that when we have faith, we will see more glory. If you only believed, you would see the glory that is to be revealed. So the beginning of John says, if you see glory, you will have faith. And then John 11 says, if you have faith, you will see glory. So it's two sides of the same coin of us being changed and conformed in the image of God In in the image of his son, Jesus Christ, we need to see glory. We need faith. We need faith to see glory. And we when we see glory, we receive faith. We grow our faith. It's a beautiful circle. And the passage this morning before us in chapter two, verses one through eleven is all about seeing the glory of Jesus. So my prayer as I was studying this is that glory would be seen and faith would be born. And that because we have faith, for those of you who do have faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and are following him as Lord, that your faith would be able to enable you to see glory, and that by seeing glory you would receive even more faith. It's a beautiful cycle that works together. When you read this passage that I know is familiar, if not to all of us, to the majority of us, of Jesus turning the water into wine, my question is this, what do you see when you read the account? You can see a miracle. John doesn't even call it a miracle, and there's a reason why he doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign, because if we just stare at Jesus and say, wow, he can do really cool things, we've missed that it's a pointer. The really amazing things that Jesus does are signs to point us to something. My fear is, as we've read this text before, maybe we've done what little kids tend to do when you tell them, oh, look at that. I do this with my daughter a lot. Chelsea, look, there's a beautiful butterfly. And I'm pointing to the butterfly, but where is she looking? She's looking at my finger, right? Look at the butterfly. And she stares at my finger. No, no, trace my finger to the butterfly. Look at the butterfly. I'm not talking about my finger. But they stare at the finger. They, they get stuck. They end. They terminate on not the, what the sign is pointing to. They terminate on the pointer, 
If we stare at this passage and we read it again and we study it again and we just say, wow, Jesus is great, we're staring at the finger that's pointing to something, but we're not seeing what it's pointing to. We need to let this point us as a sign. That's why John says it's just a sign. We need to see it as a sign pointing us to the glory of Jesus as the Son of God, God very God, and that he has full command of our lives. John The gospel writer, now, after we've received a little bit of the words of Jesus in chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, John's now going to go back and forth. It's kind of a ping pong between the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. So we've seen the words of Jesus, and now we're going to see the works of Jesus. And then we're going to see some more works, but some more words, and then works and words and works and words, constantly back and forth, for the purpose, again, in the end of the gospel, to prove that Jesus, as the signs say, to prove that Jesus is who he claims to be, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, and we've talked a little bit about what genuine saving faith is, what true belief is, it's following Jesus, you would have life in his name. Now, for me, I've read chapter 1, we studied it, and for me, that's enough to say Jesus is God. It's been convincing proof. He existed before John the Baptist. He is equal to God, co-heirs with God. It's, It's convincing proof. But even the words of Jesus at the end of chapter 1 to Nathaniel, which is, oh, you were wowed by that? I'm going to show you even greater works. It's almost like he's saying that to us. It's almost like Jesus saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. If you think that was awesome and convincing, just wait. We've got 20 some odd chapters of more convincing evidence that Jesus is God. Here we're going to see Jesus is God because Jesus can only do what God can only do. Jesus alone is the one that can do what God can do and therefore he has to be God. John is going to give us eight signs. He's going to call this his first sign, Jesus' first sign. Some people say that there's seven signs. Some people say that there's nine. Some people say there's even ten signs. I prefer to look at eight signs, and I'll give them to you, that John uses. And he specifically calls these his signs, the signs that Jesus performed to point to the glory that is his. Number one, He turns water into wine in chapter 2. And John says that's the first sign that Jesus did. Number 2, he heals a dying man in chapter 4. Number 3, he cures a paralyzed man in chapter 5. Number 4, he creates food for thousands of people in chapter 6. He also walks on water at the end of chapter 6. He gives sight to the blind in chapter 9. He raises a man who is dead for, for four days in chapter 11. He creates a meal in chapter 21 as breakfast for his disciples supernaturally. And the culminating miracle of all of those that's really beyond the eight, or it points back to the eight, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't worry if you didn't get all those. We're going to go through all of those. So I will specifically say this is sign one, this is sign two. You'll get it as we go through it. Sign one is Jesus turning the water into wine. But I want you to, I want you to write one verse down. John chapter 20, verse 30. It says this, and I want you to remember this. John says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Even at the end of his gospel, he's going to say, if I were to try and write down all of the signs that Jesus performed, the entire world could not contain it. Which is instructive to us. Number one, because it reminds us Jesus didn't just just do eight signs and that was it. Signs were a common occurrence. They were miracles were a daily occurrence in the life of Jesus. But number two, it's most instructive to us because we need to ask the question, John, why did you include these? If you're only going to include eight signs and you have myriad of signs to choose from, why did you choose eight? Why the eight? Why this one to kick off the eight? 
why do you choose what you choose? We know that he chose some of it because the synoptic gospels had given others and he didn't want to duplicate what they were saying. He wanted to give more information. But I think the best way that we can answer that question is every sign that Jesus does that John records for us has deep, deep meaning. You guys know the first meaning that this sign has. We could end this sermon by just saying right now, Jesus does what only God can do. Therefore, Jesus is God. That's the purpose of this sign. Boom, we're done. Let's pray. Let's enjoy Mother's Day. And we would be true in saying that, but it doesn't go deep enough. What you're going to see this morning uh, is the depth of the sign that John is choosing for a very specific person. There are reasons, and we're going to go through all of those reasons this morning. So let's read it together. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said, every man serves the first, the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Father, I just pray that you would open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus, even as the disciples believed because they saw. May we believe because we see and follow you because of it. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If you want an outline this morning, we're going to just have four different points in our outline. We're going to look at the place. We're going to look at the setting of this account. We're going to look at the problem that's obvious to us. We're going to look at the provision made. And then we're going to look at the purpose of all of it. So let's start with number one, the place. Verses one through two, the place. On the third day, that's using the chronology that John's been using thus far. This is the third day of that week-long Um, uh, account that John gave us starting in verse 19 with John the Baptist, with the Jews, um, with Philip and Andrew and Nathaniel and John and Peter and all those different people with Jesus being the Lamb of God. Now we're to the end of that week. So on the third day, consecutively after what he said in chapter one, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Um, Cana is not too far away from Nazareth. There's really only two choices for where Cana is. In Israel today, it's either four miles northeast of Jerusalem or of uh, Galilee, or it's nine miles directly north. And I just want to let you know that it's nine miles directly north. The four mile one is most likely not it. I've been to this little city, this little town, and um, they give you this this wine, and they say it's miraculous wine. And here you go, you get to drink what Jesus turned water into wine. It's a beautiful little location. It's nine miles. 
just north of Nazareth. It's nine miles north of Nazareth, and it's close to Jesus' hometown. This is Nathaniel's hometown. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is somehow involved in this wedding, so um, the, the likelihood that she knew who was getting married. Some people even say John, the gospel writer, was getting married. I don't think that that's the case, but some people say that. Um, the bottom line is Nazareth, the town that Jesus, remember we talked about it's a cul-de-sac. It's a pointless little town. At the most, Josephus tells us that it had 500 people at Nazareth. Cana was even tinier. At the most, it had a few dozen people. So this is a huge event. Everybody's there. Everybody's gathered together to enjoy this celebration. Weddings back in ancient Judaism, even as they are today, are the biggest events that you could possibly go to. There's a wedding. The setting here is a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So maybe this is Nathaniel's friend. And so Nathaniel says, hey, can I bring my buddies? And the friend says, sure, go ahead. We want a party. Come. Maybe this is a friend of Mary. And so Mary's saying, can my son come? And he's going to bring some friends. Whatever it is, I want you to make note of the fact that the disciples are already following. Jesus says, I'm going to a wedding. And the disciples say, we're going with you. We want to follow you. Because wherever you go, you're going to teach us something, show us something. We want to be with you where you are. And boy, were they right. That is the place. By the way, just as a side note, I don't want to um, miss this. There, there are two doctrines that come out of Catholicism that they would take from this passage. Two doctrines. Uh, just like we talked about Jehovah's Witness in chapter 1, uh, verse 1, because they use that verse to preach what they want to believe, and I wanted to make sure you knew that. I also want to make sure you know two Catholic doctrines that come from this section of Scripture. Catholic doctrine number one is the sacrament of marriage. The sacrament of marriage, because they believe that Jesus went to a wedding, and in doing so, he is glorifying what a marriage is, what a wedding is. Now, I agree. The fact that Jesus went to a wedding and performed his first sign at a wedding is huge. It shows us that weddings are important, that marriage is very important, and that Jesus condones that between a man and a woman, absolutely. But we can't go so far as Catholicism does to say that it's a sacrament, which is this. A sacrament, they have a list of the sacraments, that if you perform these things, you earn God's grace, which you can hear, that doesn't work. Grace is undeserved favor. And Catholicism says there are things that you can do. They give you the power to earn God's grace. They give you the power to earn his favor, and marriage is one of them. The second doctrine that Catholicism takes from this passage, which I find just ironic, um, is that we need to pray to Jesus through Mary. And they take that from this passage because, as you saw, Mary brings a request to Jesus. But here's the irony of that to me. And I've never been able to ask somebody involved in Catholicism what they do with this. Um, Jesus completely rejects Mary's request. It's not like Mary goes and Jesus says, whatever my mom tells me to do, I'm going to do. She brings a request to him and he says, no. Um, so I don't know if that's the, the best place to go to, to say, let's pray to Mary because our request will be brought to Jesus. Because Jesus just says, we're not doing that. Uh, so those two doctrines come from this section of scripture in the Catholic Church. We wouldn't agree with them. We wouldn't find them here. Um, and the rest of Scripture would, um, would disagree with what they're saying. But I just wanted to make sure you knew that those doctrines come from this section of Scripture. Anyway, that's the place. Let's dive into number two, the problem. The problem, you know it, the water 
uh, the wine has run out. Verses 4 through 5. Jesus, uh, or verses, I'm sorry, 3. Go to verse 3. The wine runs out. They're at a wedding. The wine runs out. The wine is supposed to be flowing for seven days. This is Jewish custom, and you can find these um, commands in Jewish custom even to today. The wine's supposed to be flowing for seven days. It's a week-long festival. We don't know when Jesus jumps into this week-long festival. Probably not at the beginning because the wine's run out. So maybe he's in the middle, but it's a long feast. It's a long festival. This was such an important detail. And we kind of look and go, who cares? The wine ran out. Go get some more. This is such an important detail that if the wine ran out at a wedding and the bridegroom is the one responsible for getting the wine and providing the wine, if the wine ran out, the bride's family could sue the bridegroom. And we have examples of that in extra biblical literature that the bridegroom was sued. There was a lawsuit against him because he let the wine run out. This is what every father fears as he turns over his daughter to a man. Oh boy, you can't even provide the wine. How can you provide for my daughter? Like this is bad news. Mary is going to appear, the wine runs out, and the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of Jesus, is going to speak to him. By the way, we only have Mary showing up two times physically, bodily, and speaking two times in the Gospel of John. Here and where else? At the cross. There are only two times. By the way, Jesus says the same thing. He starts by saying the same thing to her. He says, woman here, and he says, woman there. We're going to get into what that means. But she goes to him and says, Jesus, they have no wine. Now, some people say she's wanting him to do a miracle. Could be. I don't want to discredit that view. It could be. But we are told this is the first miracle that Jesus did. By the way, that's how we know that the Gospel of Thomas isn't true. It's extra-biblical. Because it says that Jesus made pigeons out of clay dirt uh, so that he could send them over his friends who were making fun of him and let the pigeons pick on them. Um, So we know this is true. Therefore, when we see Gospel of Thomas saying, oh, he did miracles before this, can't be true because this is the first time he ever did a miracle. So to say Mary is hoping he's going to do a miracle, maybe she's hoping, but he's never done miracles before. So my guess is it's not that. Maybe she's heard the conversations about what took place, the baptism of Jesus, the spirit descending like a dove, the temptation following him. Maybe maybe she's heard all that and she's saying his ministry is beginning. Maybe. But can I give you just a simple explanation for why she's saying this? Um, Joseph, for all intents and purposes that we know in the gospel accounts, has passed away at this point. Joseph, who is Jesus's adopted earthly father, um, is, is gone Therefore, Jesus had stepped into the role of breadwinner, provider, somebody who was going to take care of the family. So whenever Mary has something that she needs to figure out, she goes to Jesus. And is there anyone better in the universe to go to than Jesus? I mean, does he ever give a bad suggestion? Like, hey, I think think I need to fix the roof. Um, uh, Okay, go ahead and patch it with this stuff, and it never works. Like, what 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 is Jesus to Mary? Um, An amazing provider. Um, giving the best suggestions. Uh, This is like for me when I did have a leak in my roof. Who am I going to call? I'm going to call Jeff Calkins right away. Jeff, you know what to do. Help! Um, I was trying to put seed into my lawn after the birds and the raccoons decided to destroy it. And who am I going to call? Oh, I've seen Tim's lawn. It's beautiful. Tim, how'd you do this? Um, I think the the simple observation is Mary is just saying, "Um, son, can you help? 
Can you help? Now, what about his response? Some people ask me, are you going to preach on Mother's Day, uh, on a Mother's Day sermon? Um, no. But this, this kind of lends itself to Mother's Day, right? Here's my Mother's Day sermon. Children, never call your mother woman, okay? Can we just, that's, that's my Mother's Day sermon. Mothers, do we agree with that? Just, okay, so don't do this. What's taking place here? Verse 4, Jesus says to her, woman. Okay, that sounds really, really harsh. I think the best way we can say that this, it's polite distancing. It is definitely not endearing. I don't think that Mary would have expected this response. I don't think she would have said, yeah, sure, that's fine. I think she would have been like, ooh, what just happened here? You always call me mother. You always call me mommy. What's going on? But I don't think it's harsh. It's in the middle. It's politely distancing himself. It's not harsh, but it's not endearing. That's why, children, we should never say these words. Or this word. Don't say, yes, woman. Um, what is, what's going on here? Jesus is saying to her, our relationship is changing. Um, more precisely, it has changed. Um, you are coming to me on the basis of a mother coming to a son. On the basis of a family member entreating another family member. You have an inside track to me because you are my mom. And that can no longer happen. That's what he's saying. And he says that when he says, what does that have to do with us? Very, very hard translation there. Very, very difficult sentence to translate in the Greek. Literally, it means this. To me and to you, what? Um, what, what, is, what is relating us? You have your thing, I have my thing, and how does this concern both of us? Do you remember who says this the most in the Bible? Five other times in the New Testament, this phrase, what does this have to do with us, is used. And it's always said by one group of people. Do you remember who? The demons. The demons say to Jesus, whoa, we're supposed to have our time to enjoy wreaking havoc on the earth, having a great time, and then you're going to come and destroy us. We know the timetable, so why are you coming now? What do you have to do with us? You can't jump into what we're doing. And Jesus says, I absolutely can. That's the question they raise. What does this have to do with us? So what Jesus is saying is, you can't come to me, mother, and seek my input and my suggestions now on the basis of you are my mother and I am your son. You have to come to me on the basis of faith, just like everyone else. You don't have an inside track anymore. He is distancing himself politely so that he can say, my father is my sole authority. My father is my sole authority. Let me give you a couple verses to write down. Luke chapter 8, verse 21. We look at this, but we are not going to have enough time. So Luke chapter 8, verse 21. Luke 8, 21. Jesus' family is standing outside. Jesus is inside. People say, hey, I think your family's outside, just in case you want to know. And he says, who is my family? Not those outside. They don't believe in me. My family are the ones, my brothers and sisters are those who believe in me and do what I tell them. Luke chapter 11, verse 27, says the same thing. You guys remember that. They're talking about how blessed his disciples are. They're talking about how blessed those who follow him, who are closely related to him are. And a woman just blurts out, Blessed um, are you, the knees that bore you and the breasts um, that fed you. Blessed is that woman. And Jesus said, No. Blessed are those who do what I tell them. Those are my father, my mother, my siblings, my brother. Those are my family members. In Mark 3.33, 
he says the same thing. Who are my brothers? Is it not those who do what I tell them? This isn't rude. This isn't mean. It's distancing himself because he's now saying to a religious group who said, if you're raised in a godly family, if you're raised in a godly home, then you get the benefits of godliness. And Jesus is saying, no, just because you are my blood or my family, I guess you could say, my related family, doesn't mean you get an inside track to me. You have to come to me the exact same way everybody else does, which is you have to believe in me and you have to follow me. That's what you have to do. And if that sounds harsh or if that sounds bad by any stretch of the imagination, can I tell you it's really good news? It's good news that Jesus is saying this because your parents might be the most ungodly, unrepentant, rebellious people in the entire world, rejecting God, hating God, and guess what? That has no bearing on you following Jesus. No bearing. This is good news. So he says, woman, we need to distance this. I am under the authority of my father. He kind of gave a glimpse when he was 12, when he says, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? Now he is about his father's business fully. He is in his ministry, his public ministry. And his mother says, or he he continues, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Uh, Throughout the Gospel of John, that's a reference to the cross, but specifically to the exaltation, to his glorification, to the glory being seen and displayed by Jesus Christ. And so he says, don't put me on the stand. Don't give me a timetable for when these things are going to take place. The Father has the timetable, not you, and I'm working on his timetable. It's as if we could put it this way in our sanctified imagination. She comes to him and says, please help. And maybe he's hearing, do a miracle. And he's saying, it's not time yet. It's as if he prays to the father and says, is it time to perform a miracle? Father says, not yet. He says, not yet. Timetable, no, not yet. And then she goes away after saying, do whatever he asks. And it's as if the spirit, because remember, he's, Jesus is relying upon the spirit. It's as if the spirit then says, okay, now's the time. Now's the time to glorify yourself. Now's the time to show yourself in a, in a beautiful, miraculous way. And so he says, my hour hasn't come yet, but his mother, not deterred, I love the way that she doesn't get offended, doesn't take him out to the backside of the house and start whooping on him, doesn't do that. She says words that we need to hear. Whatever he says to you, do it. When was the last time you got offended by somebody? How do you view their words after you're offended by them? You don't really listen to them, right? Until that offense is removed, I don't want to listen. Or I'm going to judge everything you say super critically. I am sure that Mary was offended. And she says, whatever he says, do it. What beautiful words. Do whatever he tells you to do. That is the problem. What's the provision? Number three. Verses 6 through 10, the provision made. There were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, we have to stop and say, John, why are you saying this? Why do you say there are six stone water pots that are Jewish custom purification water pots? Why do you say that? Let me give you three reasons. I think there are at least two. One might be a stretch, and I'll tell you why. The first reason is definitely not a stretch. The reason why he says it that way is because he's giving you an eyewitness account. An eyewitness account. I know what these water pots were. I know how many there were. I know what they're used for, and I know how much water is in them. This is an eyewitness account. 
This, this kind of wording is an eyewitness account. Number two, this one might be a stretch. He says that there are six stone water pots. John likes to talk about seven being the number of perfection. And so some people say that Jesus is setting up how imperfect the Jewish custom was. And I think he's going to do that in a much better way. But there's only six. Now, here's my reason why I don't think that's fully it. Because he doesn't add a seventh water pot. He changes what's inside of them. So maybe what John is saying is this entire system was incomplete and it can never be completed in and of itself. For what it's worth, that's an option. But number three, and I think this is going deeper into the sign. I think this is the purpose of this miracle and the way that John is recording it. The ritual cleansing pots were used to purify yourself. You would say, I'm a sinner, I need to purify myself. And what Jesus is going to do is use those pots and say there's something new inside of them. The old customs that you had to purify yourself no longer work. And I'm giving you something new. You used to wash yourself with water, and I'm going to give you wine that I believe is representative of his blood, right? Revelation 7:14, we are supposed to wash our robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. And in dipping them into blood red wine, we pull them out and they're whiter than snow. What's happening here? What's happening in the Gospel of John? One writer says it this way. The three chapters, chapter 2, 3, and 4, present the replacement of the old purifications by the wine of the kingdom of God. The old temple by the new risen Lord. So the first one, he's replacing the old purifications by the wine of the kingdom of God. Next Sunday, we're going to see the old temple that's being destroyed. And he says that specifically, tear down this temple and not just my body, but he goes in and he cleanses the temple. The new risen Lord is taking over. Then he's going to give an exposition of the new birth in chapter 3. And he says, the physical birth, I'm saying that that should be a spiritual reality inside of you, a new birth. There's a contrast between the water of Jacob's well and the living water from Christ. And there's a contrast between the worship of Jerusalem and Gerizim with the worship in spirit and in truth. He's contrasting constantly. And I think he starts here by saying, I'm going to do a miracle that in, in the very act of doing it, I'm taking a, a ritual, a Jewish ritual purification jar that everyone would have known, this is what takes away my sin, and I'm going to go into it and redo it completely and say, it doesn't anymore. The Lamb of God is the only one who can take away the sin of the world. There's 120 to 180 gallons of water here in each of these uh, pots, or they're going to accumulate to that. And so what does Jesus say? Verse 7. Fill the water pots with water, so they filled them up to the brim. Why does he say that? Why does John record that? Um, Again, number one, it's an eyewitness testimony. You can see they're filled to the brim. But number two, he wants us to know that Jesus isn't pulling a fast one here. Um, You could have put very, very strong wine, just a little bit of strong wine. You could have put it into a water pot that was pretty big but had some room left, and you could have diluted it in the water and made it taste like wine. So some people say Jesus is going over with a little wineskin filled with wine and it's really strong and he just pours it in and stirs it up and says, look, I made you wine. Here you go. But that can't be when he says fill them up to the brim. When they do that, it excludes the possibility of Jesus just pulling a magic trick. So they do. And then he says, verse 8, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. The servants are doing a great job. 
When the head waiter, I love this. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from. I love that. It had become wine. Now, we're familiar with the story. But to somebody who isn't familiar to the story, you'd look at that and you'd say, wait, wait, tell us how. It just says, and it became wine. It's an afterthought. There's not a lot of focus on it. And I think that's for a reason. I think John is reminding us that's a sign. Don't get stuck on how he did it. Don't get stuck on the science behind it. Don't get stuck on the intricacies of it. Get stuck on what it's pointing you to. It's such an afterthought. Same way that when we get to like Good Friday time, people just love staring at the cross and the crucifixion and they just share gory details about what happened to Jesus on the cross. And I think sometimes that can be beneficial. But none of the gospel writers do. All they say is, and Jesus was crucified. Why? Because the point isn't his bloodiness. The point isn't the grotesqueness of what took place. The point is, he's the Lamb of God being crushed by his Father in our place. That's the point. Stay on that point and how everybody else is saying he is the Son of God. That's the point. So where does this happen? Where does this take place, John? You didn't even describe it for us. Somewhere between verses 7 and verse 8, Jesus turned the water into wine. I love this. Okay? How do we get wine? We get wine from grapes. How do we get grapes? We get grapes from vines. How do we get vines? We have to have seeds that would become the vines. How do you get seeds? You get seeds from other vines. How do you make the vine grow? Time, sunlight, water, the earth. How do you get the wine once the vine grows? You have to take the grapes, crush them. You have to strain them. You have to do this whole process and then let it age. And Jesus just takes water and says wine. He doesn't even say wine. He just thinks it and it happens. This, by the way, is a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus created the earth. Um, Apparent age, a lot of people have a problem. They they think that science um, demands that there be millions and millions and millions of years, um, that the earth is that old. I don't think that it demands that because God created the world with apparent age, and he can do that in the exact same way that Jesus created um, decades-old wine, Really good wine here that's decades old, but it's a second old. Um, Chemically, it's fermented and it has all the principles of fermentation. It's aged and yet it's a second old. He does that with fish. I love that. He creates dead things. He created dead fish. Didn't even let them live and have a process of life. They just instantly are dead. And they're the best fish that anybody's ever tasted. So too, in the Garden of Eden, God creates Adam, not as a, a little embryo, But as a fully functioning 30-year-old, he's a second old and he's 30 years old. God created the entire universe that way with apparent age, just like he does here. And so, the head waiter takes this cup, drinks from it, tastes the water which had become wine. The servants, back in the middle of verse 9, had drawn the water. They knew where it came from. They knew what had, had happened. They were the ones that put the water into the big vats and then they drew out wine. They knew that. And the head waiter, the end of verse 9, calls the bridegroom. I love this. It's where if I'm, a, if I'm a bridegroom, I am shaking in my boots. Head waiter calls me over and says, what are you doing? Do you realize now you're going to have a lawsuit on your hands? you realize your father-in-law will never trust you? We don't, we don't want to be this guy. This guy's an utter failure and he hasn't even married a week. This poor man is messed up. And this is the beauty of this miracle. We're just like this man. Utterly a failure in every way. And who covers for us? 
Who covered for him? Jesus did. And the, I'm thinking that this man expects to be ridiculed. And, and then I love when the head waiter says in verse 10, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you, bridegroom, you've done your job. You kept the good wine until now. Way to go. And he's going, yeah, I meant to do that. Way to go. Is that not exactly the way that Jesus works in our life? We say, all I am is a failure. Jesus says, I will clean you. I'll purify you. I'll atone for you. And then as we stand before God, the Father, what do we expect to hear? You're an utter failure. Failure. You can't do anything right. All you do is sin. And instead, what do we hear? You are my son. You are my daughter in whom I'm well pleased because you're covered in the blood of my son. It's the exact same account. And that's why I think there's depth to this miracle. Every man serves the good wine first. This is apparently something that was common. Everybody knew that. By the way, we do this. If you have somebody over for dinner, you're going to give them your best meal. And if they just happen to stay forever and keep eating, you're just going to start going to leftovers. And this is all we got. You know, um, that's what's going to happen. Back then, and it totally makes sense, you give the best wine first. And when everybody enjoys that, and notice he says, drinks freely, so we're at the place where maybe if you've drunk freely, you can't even tell what's good wine or bad wine. Now give him the bad wine. doesn't matter. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the best wine. One commentator says, the emphasis on the excellent quality of the wine produced by Jesus is exactly what John does in his other accounts of Jesus' work. Jesus raises the temple in three days, even though it was built in 46 years. We're going to get to all of these. Uh, I have references for them, but just we're going to get to all of them in John. He not only cures the official son, he does it from a long distance. Chapter 4. He doesn't merely heal a lame man, but one who has been an invalid for 38 years in chapter 5. He feeds the crowds from a supply of only five small barley loaves and two small fish when it would have taken eight months' wages just for each person to have one bite in chapter 6. Jesus does not merely give sight to a man gone blind, but he gives sight to one who had been blind from birth, John chapter 9, and I can't wait till we get to that section, beautiful section on sovereignty of God. He doesn't just raise a dead man, he raises a man who has been dead for four days, chapter 11, verse 17. That's the provision made. We've seen the place, we have the problem, Jesus provides the solution in turning water to wine. What's the purpose of all of it? Verse 11, one verse. This uh, is, you could say, this is the beginning Um, some of your Bibles might say this is the first of the signs. I think it's better to say this is the beginning. That's actually what the Greek word means. This is the start. His public ministry hadn't really begun yet, and this is the start. This is the beginning. And now for the rest of the book of John, we're going to see sign after sign after sign pointing to who Jesus is. But what's the purpose? This is the, the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, manifested his glory. That's what he's doing And his disciples believed in him. So he's manifesting his glory for the purpose of others believing in him. Now, I have to say this. There are three groups of people in the entire universe that have ever lived, ever will live. You can can put every single human that's ever lived into these three groups, okay? Group number one is very simply what these disciples are, believing in Jesus, believing and following saying, yes, I have seen your glory, I believe in who you say you are, and I will do exactly what you tell me to do. A true follower of Jesus Christ. That's group number one. Turn to John chapter 12. 
John chapter 12, I want you to see group two and group three. Because what's the point? The purpose of this miracle, of this sign, is to manifest the glory of Jesus Christ so that we may believe. Just as the disciples saw the glory of Jesus, so we have seen the glory of Jesus, and now we have to make a choice. Group number one makes the choice. He is who he says he is, and I'm going to follow him. Group number two is found in John chapter 12, verse 37. Drop down to verse 37. It says this, But though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were what? They were not believing in him. So they see the exact same sign, just like the servants. They see the sign, they know what's happening, but they don't believe. So group number one believes and follows. Group number two says, I see the same exact sign, but I will not believe. Group number three is kind of in the middle. It's in verse 42. Nevertheless, Many, even of the rulers, believed in him. Yay, we have believers. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. I think a lot of people are in group number two. Or group number three, rather. I totally see the sign and I believe he is who he claims to be. But there's something holding me back. For these people, it was the love. uh, They loved the approval of man rather than the approval of God. It was specifically the fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, so they had something to lose socially. Maybe it's our sin that we love too much. We don't want to repent from. We don't want to turn from. There are so many ways you can answer that question, but I think a lot of people are in group three saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why James says the demons believe that too. The question is, do you follow him like group one? Only of those three groups, group one that believes and follows, group two that doesn't believe, and group three that believes but doesn't follow, only group one is truly saved. So what's the purpose of this miracle? It's so that his disciples and everyone else who would look on would become a part of group one. I believe and I will follow. Whatever it is that would be what I love more than following you is what I need to deal with. That's the issue. And that's what I need to turn from. So, in conclusion, let me just give you three points of kind of implication application here. Number one, what is this passage? John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. What does it tell us? It tells us, number one, that true purification comes only through Jesus. True purification comes only through Jesus. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Get out of the temple. Stop being involved in the religious systems because they do not work. The author of Hebrews says something greater than Moses is here. Jesus said something greater than the temple is here. All of those things that used to be purifying, even though they didn't truly take away your sin, they were pointing to something, and that something has come, that something is Jesus Christ, as John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So purification water pots can no longer cleanse you. Jewish customs can no longer cleanse you. Religion cannot cleanse you. It can't. Only Jesus can cleanse. Should we seek to fill our spiritual piggy banks, as it were, with the currency of our religious efforts and even fill them up to the brim as these water pots were filled up to the brim. It would not be merit enough to earn God's favor, ever. It can't. 
That's why Isaiah 55 verse 1 says, Behold, everyone who thirsts, come to me. I will give you wine that won't cost you anything. If you try to buy the favor of God through your spiritual good works, through your moralism, God says, this isn't for you. You can't, you never will be able to. You have to come by faith with nothing in your hands. That's why we sing Rock of Ages, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. If if my zeal no respite would know, if my tears forever would flow, all for sin could never atone. Thou must save and not alone. Thou alone. That's what's seen here. Jesus is doing away with the old rituals of purification. Craig Blomberg says, the miracle is a vivid illustration of the transformation of the old water of Mosaic religion into the new wine of the kingdom. Herman Ritterboss says it similarly, for now there is wine as plentiful as water, indeed as plentiful as all the water of purification, which had flowed continually, but it could never take away the sin of the world. Now we have wine that can take away the sin of the world if you would just dip yourself in it. Number two, we see in this passage clearly, do what Jesus tells you to do. Not only does Jesus alone purify, but do what Jesus tells you to do. That's Mary's encouragement to us this morning. Do what Jesus tells you to do. That's the disciples' encouragement to us this morning. They believed and they followed him. Yep, you are who you say you are. We're going to follow you. Do what Jesus tells you to do. Jesus submitted fully to his Father, and therefore, whenever he tells us to do something, he's telling us to do something that the Father told him to tell us to do. We know we never have to second-guess what he's telling us. Do what he tells us to do. And finally, number three, not only is Jesus the only way we can be purified, not only should we do what Jesus tells you to do, but number three, the question, what kind of believer are you? What group are you in? Group one, two, or three, what kind of believer are you? D.A. Carson said, the servant saw the sign, but not the glory. They were there. They saw everything taking place, and they go, yeah, whatever, some cool trick. The disciples, by faith, perceived Jesus' glory behind the sign. They, they saw the pointer to the glory, and they put their faith in him. Remember Luke chapter 8, verse 21, the passage that I gave you about Jesus' family relationships. He says, the only ones who are truly my family are those who do what I tell them to do. If you claim to be a child of God and you do not do what God tells you to do, for whatever reason it might be, then First John And John, the gospel, would say that you're not truly a part of the family of God. J.C. Ryle says, Happy are those who, like the disciples, believe on him by whom this miracle was wrought. A greater marriage feast than that of Cana will one day be held when Christ himself will be the bridegroom and believers will be the bride. A greater glory will one day be manifested when Jesus shall take to himself his great power and reign. And blessed will they be in that day who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, we are that bridegroom stuck in chapter 2 with just failure and loser written on our head. And however we want to try and make up for our sins, it will never work. We need to be surprised yet again by Jesus saying, I've got you. I will die in your place. I'll take your sin upon myself. I will die the death that you deserve to die. I lived the perfect life you could never live, and I'll offer that to you in my resurrection. And all you have to do is follow me. Believe that I am who I I claim to be, and you're going to naturally follow me. Imagine what that bridegroom must have thought. Oh, wow. 
this man has provided for me has made my greatest blunder my greatest hour of glory. Jesus does the same for us and for those who would believe. Father, we thank you for your love for us that is evident in Jesus Christ, and he is the one that we want to lean on now. He is a friend for sinners. He is a friend for loser bridegrooms like this man in John 2. He is a friend for all of us who would go to him by faith and seeking his grace, not because of anything we could ever do, but because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is our friend. And so we say, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. He saves, he helps, he keeps, he preserves, he loves us, and he is with us to the very end. God, we believe you, help our unbelief, and may you be glorified in our midst this day, we pray in your name.